Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to an interview with Joe Vega, Somalia veteran. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And tonight is Friday, January 27th in the year 2023. It's kind of a big day. A little bit earlier today at Bended Knee, we also passed the 2000th show, which is, yeah, that that's kind of a big thing. That's kind of like this sort of big thing, like almost ready to go. So 2000 shows. We are now into the 2001st episode tonight. That's a massive benchmark. We have literally grown at an unbelievable rate and as i said today and very clearly that this is a channel that is dedicated and to god god runs this thing i steward it we gather and build fellowship and we spread the word of christ across the world by focusing on two principal pillars which is knowledge and faith and that's how we're going to take this country back and that's how we're going to take this world back so Many, many thanks to all of you for all the amazing support this, this channel has been given as we continue to grow. And 2000 is just the beginning, but it's an amazing way, achievement to hit. The one that I never thought possible or never really thought about until suddenly it was on top of me. So here we are, 2000 shows and now tonight, 2001. And with the 2001st show, and the 2002nd show is going to be very special tonight because this is a very close friend of mine, an unbelievable American hero, one that you probably have not heard the name of, but he's literally been in every major conflict, conflict or special missions operation since the late 80s. He's a Somalian veteran. He's, uh, he's represented in the film Black Hawk Down as one of the Delta operators by the name of Hoot. 
Hoot Wharton, who's that was actually built around Hoot Wharton, but Joe was with that team, and he was one of those Delta guys on the ground saving the Rangers. He's an amazing man, has a lot to tell, and I think you'll enjoy the show, this story very much about him and his richness and wealth of knowledge. One of the things about Joe is he's dedicated his life to building soldiers, and one thing that he always likes to say is that his, his main life goal is to make young soldiers into old soldiers. Joe always used to say as well, as I've had an opportunity to work with Joe and worked with him when I was at Asymmetric Warfare Group, which was a real blessing. And when we got to know each other, it was literally like two brothers that had not been, had not seen each other for years. Um, Joe would always say that, you know, one of the things he'd remind people of is as you get to work in your life, you have to remember that it's not who you know, but if they remember your name. And I will tell you, when people meet Joe and know Joe, especially within the military, they know his name. An amazing man that uh, has run an amazing life, and you're going to get a chance to get a glimpse tonight into a different type of world, one that I've been very fortunate to work around and to work with, where the morals and the ethics and the standards of performance are impeccable and unwavering in their commitment to God and country. That's one thing to always take heart to. It's really fantastic. Before we begin tonight, I want to remind you it's a very important time at this moment to be taking good care of your health and be taking good care of your wealth and good care of what you have in your family. There's two major issues to that. One is to make sure you have a good protection plan. That's one of the reasons that we have iTarget Pro. You know how passionate I am about our Constitution and especially the Second Amendment, but just as passionate about being responsible and protecting my family. I discovered the perfect way to train with your firearm in the comfort of your own home and continue to improve your skills. It's called iTarget Pro, and this system is a game changer for me. All I did was download iTarget's proprietary app, load the laser bullet into my firearm, and start training. The system develops muscle memory, reaction speed, sight alignment, trigger control, and much more. Right now, save 10% plus get free shipping with the offer code BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, when you go to itargetpro.com. With the cost of ammo through the roof, this is the perfect solution for you. That's the letter I, targetpro.com, itargetpro.com. The offer code is BARDS, B-A-R-D-S. This is something you definitely need. itargetpro.com, great way to sit around in the evening when you're not at the range and practicing your zeroing and your accuracy and all those other good things. Safe in the home, too. That's the best thing. We're in a crazy time. There's no question about it. We're in a period of fifth-generation warfare, which we're going to do some stories on that next week. Just to remind everybody of the complexities of this war space that we're in, this battle space that we're in. And these sorts of complex areas that we're dealing in now were things that we were dealing with when I was at Asymmetric Warfare Group and also when I was working in Afghanistan. The conceptual ideas of a entire war that was centered around information and influence and psyop in many ways was theoretical and there was a lot of conjecture based on it but we're living through one right now and it challenges each and every one of us every day the hardest part about this type of war is truth becomes pluralized trust gets degraded and with it many times goes the morals and values of a nation that's the idea is to ultimately break things down, break people down so that they no longer perform at the level that they need to be performing at and they give up and they give in. Right now we're watching and witnessing across our nation the 
intentional degradation of morals and standards. And that's something that at a certain point, every single one of us has to make a decision of whom you shall serve. And that's really in these first few months of this year, that's the big question that everybody should ask themselves and decide what it is that you're willing to serve and what you're willing to commit to and, and give up and sacrifice for. What do you love so much that you will sacrifice everything to defend? Simple words, but powerful words to remember. The one thing when you deal with special operations community that is such a refreshing piece, especially for me, is that is that part is a given. That they are there. We will always be there. They will give everything in their lives for this nation. And it may take some time to, if you're wondering, like, where are our veterans? Not everybody wants to jump off the bench and start running into the fight. But I will tell you, as this thing continues, the veterans are coming off the bench. And people are getting fed up with this, of what we're witnessing, watching a country being victimized from my perspective and looking at my area of specialty, which has always been information warfare, to witness what these trolls and derelicts and psychopaths are doing to a nation that was never trained or prepared to endure something like this. This is an ambush of the most heinous kind. And the punishment for them, in my simple terms, the justice that's delivered to the true perpetrators of this crime is death. It's that simple. Because what what they have done to a nation is unmeasurable in the damage psychologically that will take years to heal. But each one of us now has a real strong understanding, hopefully, at this time of what this reality is. And so in part of bringing someone like Joe on tonight, it's about getting, again, a glimpse into a mindset where things in that world, in the world that I was part of, it's a very simple understanding. There is good and there is evil. And evil gets punished. The only question is to what measure and method you use to punish it. Life is that clear. And life needs to be that clear for every single American out here today. Because this is the enemy that we fight that wants to convolute those battle spaces, convolute that thinking, convolute the way we live to such a degree that we forget how simple and pure life should be and must be in order to survive. So before we jump in to the interview, one last call out for one of our great sponsors, Patriot Supply. Remember to keep up with all well, the preps you need because these derelict psychopaths want to take away your food. Patriots, you can hide your head in the sand or you can face the future head on. Those are your two options. If you want to remain free and self-reliant, despite whatever happens in the world, you need to get yourself enough emergency food so you can survive the coming chaos in our society. You can fully expect food shortages if everything breaks down. And if you don't already have enough food on hand, you will regret it. So do yourself a favor and go to preparewithbards.com and save $200 on a three-month emergency food kit from My Patriot Supply. They're the nation's largest preparedness company, and they're knocking $200 off the regular price of their three-month kit to help make it affordable for families who are feeling the pain of inflation right now. At this price, get one kit per person for your family. These kits are in stock, and they ship fast and free. Save $200 per kit when you go to preparewithbards.com, preparewithbards.com. Patriots, I've said it so many times, food security is the foundation of personal sovereignty. So head on over to preparewithbards.com 
and take advantage of this amazing offer. Do it today. All right, Patriots. So this is part one. Part two will air tonight in the Fishers of Men place. Let me introduce to you my good friend, an American hero, literally. Probably if you saw him, you'd think he looks like G.I. Joe. Almost does. Arms the size of a truck. A fit, amazing operator, a Somali veteran, Joe Vega. Now, Patriots, this is a really honored day for me. I have one of my best friends and truly a brother in arms. And this is one of America's legends, which most people don't know because he's such a humble man. This is Joe Vega. And Joe Vega was part of was Soft D. You would also know that as Delta. He has been in almost every major conflict and some of the most critical special missions operations since the late 80s that America has been involved in and has been participant in raising and developing soldiers in the latter part of his career in a dedicated way that few can even imagine. He's given his life to building soldiers and to building great warriors in our nation. Joe is a retired sergeant major. He has worked with some of the greatest commanders, and I am truly blessed in my life to have worked with him and to call him friend and brother. Joe, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. How about yourself, brother? I'm doing great. Joe, let's talk, start just a little bit with just kind of an overview of your life so people get to know you a little bit. Uh, a very uh, unconventional upbringing uh, in uh, New York City, in the Bronx. Uh, my, um, my family, uh, my father's from Spain, my mother's from Puerto Rico. Uh, we moved to New York City, and all my aunts and everybody moved with us. Uh, the funny part about it is uh, because we were Spaniard, we moved to an Italian neighborhood. So all my aunts married Italian, so everybody always thinks I'm Italian. Yeah, I speak Italian. Uh, but uh, that led me to, a, I'm talking about the 60s and, seven, and early 70s, so you can imagine uh, uh, we weren't well-liked by Giuliani, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but as things may, ha- may, may happen, my, my uncles got greedy, and uh, let's say we had to depart very quickly. So, uh, so we moved to Puerto Rico, and uh, uh, actually, I went to college uh, for mechanical engineering and uh, hated it. I said, I'll never wear a tie, I'll never wear a suit. So I joined the military. And uh, from then on, it just was a very uh, unconventional upbringing in the Army. Uh, People tend to think uh, special ops is, especially during that time, was very uh, racist, all mostly uh, uh, white soldiers from rural America. But think about it. Kids from the city uh, want to join the army for, back then you could join for you know, three years and you were winning jail time or four years, but they want to they get something that they can uh, build a career that they can use on the outside. They don't plan on making it a life uh, career. So kids from the inner city want to learn a, ta- uh, a technical job. And then they want to be able to, after three or four years, get out and apply that to civilian life. They don't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the military and be a ranger, be special forces, be, you know, some Delta. They say, I'm going to go there and learn uh, admin or I'm going to learn computers. I'm going to learn a mechanic. My dad told me to uh, go in for air conditioning repairment because everybody needs an air conditioner. When I told him I was, gonna, I was in the rangers, he said, uh, what is that? He, when I told him, he said, well, you'll never amount to anything. Uh, <laughs> but kids from rural America, if you tell them, hey, I'm going to pay you money to live in the woods and shoot and uh, eat off the land, they're going to go, when do I sign? 
So that's that's the problem that people don't realize that it's, it's just a different mentality. It's a different, uh, you know, different geographics. Uh, so in my time, especially when I joined the Rangers, I think there was uh, two Hispanics, uh, you know, that's included, and uh, uh, one Mexican, and I think one black. But we were called the Brown Boy team. And people say, isn't that derogatory? I said, no, they use us because we did not look like a typical American. So they use us for everything. If anything, everybody else was jealous. And that happened throughout our whole career. Everybody's like, why is it always you? I'm like, I guess I don't look like you, you know. I've been a Turk, I've been Egyptian, I've been Colombian, I've been Mexican, I've been Italian. I've been, uh, uh, well, I have never been a Pacific Islander. So, <laughs> or, or, or South Korea. But, uh, but it's just, uh, I've been able to go into places and blend in. The other thing is being raised bilingual is very easy for me to pick up different languages. So, uh, you know, you study for a while, uh, you know, actually gave us opportunities to study and then they would send us an immersion training to places. For me, the immersion training was my actual missions, but uh, you tend to learn the languages real quick because you're embedded with that, with the army or the police or whoever you're working with from that, from that country. So Brown, Brown Boy team was a badge of honor. And that's just what I want to explain to people that it's not a, now you have more, uh, I guess, diversity in special ops. Uh, it's actually a good thing. Uh, but again, there's no, there's no racism whatsoever. We're green. We all have, we say we all wear a green uniform. We all have the same blood. And the biggest thing is, uh, I can tell right now in combat, there's two things I've never seen. And that's a racist and an atheist. You know, everybody says, hey, my brother, you got my back. Why is that? I got your back. We're all brothers. And when uh, uh, when things get get uh, scary, I've always heard everybody say, you know, a little prayer. So, uh, so regardless of what they tell you, believe me, there's no... No racism, no atheists at all. So you went from Rangers and then you went through, did you go Special Forces and then Delta? Is that Was that the step? Yes, that was a step, Special Forces and then Delta. General Downey, uh, great, great general, and uh, remembered everybody's name, regardless if you were a pride. He was uh, a great man. Uh, he always said uh, uh, the best, uh, especially when he was JSAC commander, he said the steps to becoming a good operator is starting with the Rangers, you know, or, or less Rangers, it could also be 82nd, it could also be 101st. I don't want to put any of those units down. They're all great units. But it's being an infantryman and learning the basics of working in a large unit, not only a battalion, but also as a company level and as a platoon level. So you learn to, uh, to manage and uh, to manage soldiers, uh, not only in civilian life, and back in the rear, but also in combat. Then you go special forces, you learn to work as a specialty in a 12-man team behind enemy lines. Now, Rangers, just to make everything clear, Rangers... Uh, uh, their forte is rage, recons, and ambushes behind enemy lines. Uh, special forces, they're mostly trainers. They train the foreign forces. They train also behind enemy lines, but they'll train the, the guerrilla forces. They'll train the resistance forces. So they're, they're trainers. And, uh, and then when you go, uh, then from the next step from there is Delta, and it's learning to work as a small team, five-man team, but even more is as a singleton. So uh, there's many times that I've been to places just by myself. Yeah, that's some of the stories we're going to get into here in a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the process of selection. And you've been, not only have you been through selection in Special Forces and then Special in Selection in Delta, but you've also helped build selection processes for AWG. Talk a little bit about what selection is and what the objectives are. Uh, 
really selection is uh, is getting down to the to the inner self of a person. Uh, you know, it's always physical because uh, you want to break them down, uh, but really it's to see how how far they're willing to go to get something that they really want. So really, the process of selection is concentrating on the physical first, and then uh, after the physical, then it's obviously uh, uh, mentally. What what are you made of? What do you think? What are your uh, actually, you know, beliefs and the moral and ethics. Um, for the Rangers, uh, it was always about, about brotherhood. It was always about, you know, you don't, uh, it was about taking care of each other and you really don't mess with, a, with another Rangers family, girlfriends, wives, uh, very, uh, uh Christian, but really uh, brotherhood oriented, uh, special forces, uh, and, and you got to remember, I'm talking about 70s, 80s, you know, 90s, and I got on the, in 2004. But things have changed. And back then, uh, really, uh, for Special Forces, you were looking at a guy that was very street smart. Because remember, back then, the groups were very small. There was no USASOC. There was no SF Command. There was no JSOC when I first came in. So it was very... Uh, even though you were very, uh, you didn't work as, the groups didn't work together. Like the guys in Panama worked on their own, the guys in Bragg worked on their own. Uh, so the commander had to trust you really, you get a budget, but everything that you did, you made it happen. It's not like you were supported from an outside entity. Uh, so uh, you had to be very street smart to make things happen, especially when it came to building things, building things for training. The budget wasn't that large. Um, and it was very hard to get promoted back then because the pyramid was very, very uh, narrow at the top because nobody wanted to leave. Nobody wanted to get out. You had to pretty much bend an officer's arm to go to a career building school or something because they never wanted to leave. They would rather stay captains or majors their whole career. And the highest you could ever go was colonel back then. Um, with the creation of JSOC and USASOC and all the other commands and the SF command, I mean, it helped. It helped for promotions. It helped to take care of the guys better. But a little bit of that street element, street and kind of went away. Um, in the unit, same thing. It's, uh, it's, uh, you, everything is on your own. The other two, their selection process and their training is all as a team. Delta, their selection process is a single team. So it's all on your own. It's, you know, and uh, some people can take it well, and some people, that just kills them. They can't participate in it. Now, I will say, on all three, um, we get the people that, that, that we get the best out of the best. But there's a lot of other good people out there. I'm just saying this because I don't want them to think that there's a lot of good people that just get hurt and they never come back. Or like many of our brothers in the Ranger Battalion, you know, there's our major will tell them, well, if you go to selection, don't bother coming back, you traitor. You know, and that's not right. You know, if a guy wants to uh, further his career and be better and better, you know, do best every time, then give him the opportunity. But a lot of the people, a lot of soldiers, their sergeant majors will let them believe that the unit will not function without them if they leave. And that makes them stay. So a lot of guys just pass on an opportunity that will make them better soldiers. Uh, I always said, I would say, I always tell, when the people tell me that, when soldiers tell me that, I tell them, okay, get a bucket of water, stick your hand in it, take it out. How quick did it fill? He said, immediately. I said, that's how fast they're going to fill up your position. I said, within a week, people will be saying, man, I wish sergeant so-and-so was back. Within a month, they'll be saying, sorry, who? So it's, you know, so I tell guys, don't, don't miss that opportunity. Don't, you know, if it's something you really want, it's something you want to do, try it. The only failure is the failure to try. 
That's so true. When did you start in Delta? Because Delta has its roots in SAS, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And so does, I mean, you think about it. Their roots are in, in uh, SAS. But, it, I mean, it starts with Special Forces. Really, if you think about it, Delta's title is First Special Forces uh, Detachment Delta. So uh, our special, first SFOD, Special Operational Detachment Delta. So, uh, uh, so really their roots come from, from, uh, from Special Forces. Uh, special Forces, you have the Blue Light Team. That was kind of the anti-terrorist team uh, back then. And uh, Beckwith said he can make something even better. Eh, they kind of have a feud, but uh, Beckwith won. Uh, so, uh, so really, when you think about it, Delta's really forte is anti-terrorism, going after the top 10 lists of whoever the U.S. is, is pursuing. And so when did you start? Uh, I went to selection in uh, 1988 and, uh, and started, uh, uh, and started uh, uh, obviously, uh, you go to selection, then you have a six-month training process. And uh, even, even during the six-month training process, you still lose personnel. So you end up, the, the bottom line is uh, your final uh, product is the best of the best. There is a standard that exists that I was very fortunate to work around and with that many people don't really understand. And it's the, it's the ethics and the expectations of near perfection when you're in these units and the integrity of being honest if you make a mistake. You've talked a lot about that as we've come to know each other over the years. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that standard. In particular, I'm going to ask you to tell a story when you were in Iraq, when you put yourself on remedial training. So can you talk about that? In the, in the unit, uh, the only thing they ask you is never lie. They said, you, people make mistakes, and we know that. We're all human. What we look at is intent. What was your intent? If the intent is malicious, then... You know, as the same New York, forget about it. You know, you're going to be, uh, you know, you, you'll leave. And uh, uh, if it's a mistake, uh, depends on what the mistake is. <laughs> uh, it would be, uh, you may be asked to leave for a year and, uh, and then come back. Now, naturally, when you come back, you have to go through another selection process because they want to make sure that you're still physically fit and you're still are mentally capable. Uh, but that's the only reason, most of the reasons people would leave, it's either uh, career progression or, uh, uh, but mostly it would be if, if they made a mistake or they lied or, or something. Well, lying, I mean, lying, you leave, that's it. But, but if you made a mistake, uh, the unit is very forgiving, especially when you're, as a, I think, as a singleton, because there's a lot of decisions you have to make. Uh, uh, General Garrison, General Boykin, General Schumacher, I mean, I've worked with them many times, uh, General Downey, General uh, Scotty Miller. Uh, and all they ever asked me was, you know, don't lie, Joe, just, just tell us. So I was always honest with them. No matter what I was doing on my ARs, I was always honest. And if anybody else uh, questioned my integrity, uh, I would just say, hey, go talk to, uh, I talked to, uh, uh, you know, uh, Colonel Boykin at the time, you know, and, uh, they always back me up, always. I mean, I could, I, I know it may not sound true. I've never worked for a bad command, never. So in Iraq, you were doing entry, as I remember the story, and uh, you made a shot that was instinctually correct, 
but you were honest about it. Can you talk about that? So a lot of, a lot, a lot of um, I revert always to the Blackout Dawn movie when uh, uh, one of the characters uh, in the movie says, uh, uh, Captain Steele says, your weapon is not unsafe. And he says, uh, my finger, you know, my trigger finger is my safety. And, you know, we all laughed about it, but the truth is a lot of us would, would say that. Uh, but there's a reason for having a safety on a weapon, you know, no matter how, how much. So uh, uh, when, um, when training was uh, Tony Blauer, uh, he was used to his, on uh, martial arts, his technique is uh, based on the flinch, that everybody flinches. And uh, I always thought about that. And I was like, ah, you know, now we're, we're operators, we're hardcore, we're strong at heart. We don't flinch. Uh, that's a bunch of crap. So uh, uh, I was going around the corner, getting ready to go up, uh, up some uh, stairs. And uh, I bumped into someone else. And uh, the bottom line is my finger was on the trigger. And it was a perfect double tap. Because <laughs> uh, once the first one went, I might as well go with the second one. But uh, <laughs> the, truth is, the truth is I flinched. It was in the, so naturally, everybody, you know, you get back, you have your ARs. Even in combat, you have your ARs because you have to, you know, you want to know what's right and what's wrong. And uh, bottom line is, uh, you know, I said, hey, you know, I, that was not intentional. And uh, so I put myself in a position where, you know, I, uh, I committed, you know, it was something that uh, for us, it's, it's, it's not uh, really not forgiving because you should be better trained than that. Now, I will say there's guys back in the rear that have been uh, in, in the range with, by themselves or with, a, with another uh, or with one of their buddies. Um, because our ranges are open 24-7. And uh, I've, there have been personnel in the unit that have come back on Monday morning, shooting on a Saturday or Friday evening or Saturday. And they'll come back the next morning, go to Sergeant Major's office and said, Sergeant Major, I had an accidental discharge. They call an AD. Uh, and I'll go, what? Says, but nobody was around. And they, but the guys are that intent. Listen, nobody wants to become what we call persona grata, PNG in the unit. Uh, and if, uh, you know, the biggest thing is for you to, commit an error or mistake or something, you think nobody's watching. And then uh, before you know it, somebody, uh, you know, says, hey, you know, I saw this. But the biggest thing with us is, you know, what is integrity? You know, what are your moral, what are your ethics? And when it comes to being in a unit such as Delta, it's about doing what's right, even in the, when in the absence of others. I mean, that's the reason why we are selected to do singleton missions, because the commander trusts you enough to know that you will do the right thing, even when nobody else is there to observe and I'm telling you, I never respect the people more than when I would see them uh, make a mistake in training, make a mistake, you know, when they were shooting or something, and then come back and tell their, their commander, tell their sergeant majors. And that's, that's just the way the unit is. You know, we respect it. We love being there. Nobody ever wants to leave. <laughs> and, uh, and we are willing to do the right thing, regardless of the consequences. Yeah, that's fantastic. Joe, you were in Somalia. I don't, a lot of people don't know that, obviously. And you were on the ground in Somalia and literally part of that. Um, I mean, the film is in part portrays some of what you did, the black Hawk down. Yeah. Let's, let's talk, let's go into Somalia and talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little about the lead up and then let's, uh, let's get into it. Uh, you mentioned the movie. I just want to say that uh, uh, Ridley Scott did a uh, preview for the unit as a sea squadron uh, for uh, the movie. He didn't want to release it until we blessed it. So I, I think that was right. Uh, um, 
worst part for me is I was sitting with uh, Gary Gordon and Randy Stewart's widows, and uh, it was hard uh, being there with them when we saw the portrayal of their husbands. Uh, but when the movie was over, he said, guys, what do you think? He wanted an honest opinion. And should he show it? Um, yes, there was Hollywood. Uh, you know, too many, when you got over, you know, when you have 100 operators and rangers working together, you can't portray them all. So he combined a lot of characters into one. So, uh, but the biggest thing is we all said, if that's what it takes to remember 18 fallen comrades, then go ahead and show them. And that's how I feel, you know. If that's what it takes for us to remember 18 patriots that were willing to give their lives for the security of this nation, then I don't care if it was a cartoon or if it was a comedy, just show it and make sure that we remember their names. And uh, that was the sentiment throughout the, throughout the unit. I mean, obviously, historically for the unit, it was a big event, probably one of the most significant conflicts of the unit because it was so public and so much loss, correct? Yeah, uh, we have never, uh, really everywhere I've been before that, I was always uh, uh, pretty confident that we would be successful. Even in Samana, people don't realize we had, I think it was six missions prior to October 3rd, and they all went picture perfect, uh, just as trained. Uh, we made some mistakes. Uh, what I want people to understand is that Somalia was a feral nation or a feral city. Mogadishu was a feral city uh, since 1990. So there was no government. The government had already departed. And uh, it was just a Dodge City. It was, uh, it was wild. It was the Wild West all over again. Farida uh, Deed, uh, you know, everybody talks about the, the famine and stuff, but a lot of the famine, even though there was, there was a, a lack of food and, and a drought, uh, it was self-created by the warlords. Uh, the U.S. would send, and other nations would send uh, food. They would send uh, medical uh, medicine and people to assist. But the warlords had control. So whenever the food uh, would show up, they would just take it by force, put it in their, in their warehouses. And uh, it was, uh, you know, if you work for me, then I provide uh, the things that the government should provide for you. I'll provide security. Uh, I'll, get, I'll provide... Uh, Work with work comes shelter and sustenance. So there's three things people need, and that's security, uh, shelter, and sustenance. As a male, who are always trained to provide for our families, and now there's nothing throughout there. If you're the one that says, "Hey, if you work for me, you're gonna, you know, not only will we secure your your neighborhood, but you'll be able to provide a house for your family and food." Well, who's gonna say no? There's nothing else available, and I think that's one of the things that we failed to capture, that we were not going against uh, the typical society or a, a culture that we had going in the past. And another thing is that when you're going after the person that's providing everything for everyone, uh, you got to have uh, a message for the people. You have to make them understand why, uh, why are we there? And what's the benefit for them? And you know, what's the outcome and what's the benefit for them? And we failed to do that. And I can say that everywhere else we've ever been, we always, we always learn about the culture, make sure we embraced it. We made sure we knew what to do, what not to do. Uh, pretty much because we may have to E and E, and that culture may have to be there to, to assist you, which we've seen a lot in the, in recent years, especially in Afghanistan and Iraq. But we failed to do that at that time. We really had no respect for the culture. We respect, had no respect for the Somalis. Uh, we figured that eh, they their weapons have no 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 sights. They have no night vision. They have no sights on their RPGs. There's no way they can they can ever be a threat to us. And when it comes to RPGs. Uh, uh, if you read the manual, it says you can't fire in an angle, you can't fire indoors, 
because the backblast is going to kill you. Well, guess what? We know that because we train and we read the manuals. Somalis, they had no manuals. They just gave them a weapon, gave them a, uh, the ammo and said, this is how you shoot it. So you may say you can't shoot at an angle. So our helicopters are safe. They fire at an angle and drop you know, two helicopters. Uh, they've, we say they can't fire from inside. They fired from inside many buildings. We never saw it coming. So, you know, you got to remember, you know, how, how do these other countries train? And uh, again, that's something that we failed to, to really think about and realize. So the mission going in was, was it following? It was, you were going in for the warlord then when you went in, right? Yeah. So we had, uh, we had, um, we had guys. Uh, going into the city and out. we had our, our methods of, uh, of our own uh, uh, intelligence uh, or I should say tactical information because we're not supposed to gather intelligence. So gathering tactical information. Uh, <laughs> no, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, but um, we knew that there was going to be a meeting with uh, a lot of uh, Adid's uh, commanders in the Olympic Hotel. Uh, that came to us from one source uh, that we had uh, really, he kind of was kind of feeding information to both sides. Um, uh, one of the ways we, we, we try to avoid that nowadays is we make sure they don't get rewarded right until after the fact, after the mission is done and, and we've proven that the information was correct. Uh, I can't say exactly how this person was rewarded, uh, but the bottom line is he got what he wanted, then he went and told on us, you know, it's told the other side too. So he's double dipping. Uh, so because of that, really, we thought Adid would be there. Adid was not there, but they didn't cancel the meeting. And the reason he didn't cancel the meeting is because now uh, he's baiting us. So we went into, into Mogadishu, which we called the Hornet's Nest. Uh, we knew it was going to be, it's not, it was not going to be easy. Uh, what we failed to do was really to change the way our tactics on every mission. We kind of got complacent and we kind of did the same thing uh, more than once. And uh, even though we, we, we normally say we don't do that, uh, in that occasion, we, did, we just got complacent and, uh, and we paid the price. So when, when we went in, pretty much uh, they, were, they were waiting for us and uh, and uh, we got ambushed from the, from the minute we stepped in. Uh, we flew in, and then the Rangers drove in. We, we were ambushed right, off, right, off, right away. You were in the air uh, yourself, right? Yeah, I was, uh, I was actually in a sniper team with Gary Gordon and Randy Shuman. We were together. Uh, the day prior, uh, another uh, great buddy of mine, uh, Brad Holland, had uh, kind of twisted his ankle. And he said, hey, you know, how about we switch? You take my team in, and I'll... Uh, uh, and I'll take, I'll get on the bird uh, with the snipers. And uh, so we actually switched position. None, I would have been on that bird with guy going around his sugar. And, and it mentally, you know, it always haunts you because you always think, you know, what could I have done different? I should have been there and this and that. Well, the outcome would have been the same. You know, yeah, it probably would have been three dead instead of two, and, you know. Uh, but yeah, so I went in the air uh, on, uh, and one of, one of the little birds. And uh, I then kind of was uh, come in, fast rope. He fast rope some guys onto the top of the building, some to the bottom, come in, hit it from the top and bottom, and then uh, get the, get the uh, commanders or uh, his, his team leads, uh, get him out, and put him in one of the five. We have five-ton vehicles. 
and then uh, send them to the Rangers, and we leave, we depart again in our helicopters, and the Rangers drive away with those guys. Uh, we 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 did uh, uh, we did infill as we planned. Uh, we did uh, uh, secure the building. We did capture. I think there was about twenty one personnel at that time that we put in the, in the back of a five ton. Uh, and then everything broke loose. And uh, as a matter of fact, they were, uh, the Somalis were not only uh, targeting us, they were also targeting the people, uh, the prisoners that we had in the back of the, of the five ton. They figured, you know, we don't want them to get any information at all. So uh, they, none of us was, uh, none of us was safe, even, even, even the POWs we had captured. Wow. So you also were there with Scotty Miller, right? Oh yes, he was. Uh, he was my commander and for my troop, uh, great, uh, great commander, one of the best commanders and best generals uh, this army has ever produced. Absolutely, and, and we share that. the The incident then, when you were in the air, but then at some point, pretty much everybody was on the ground. There, correct? Yes, everybody was on the ground because, uh, again, because the fire uh, was so extensive. Uh, Helicopters really had no place to land, and uh, they would have been targeted because uh, obviously that was the main target. Take our take away our, our uh, way of escape of getting out. So all the helicopters were, were targeted. Now, let it be said that those guys, those pilots, again, they never. Uh, the only time they departed was to refuel or get more ammo, and then they come right back. They had, they were, had no concern for themselves. It was all about keeping us safe. Uh, again, those were our our saving angels, uh, and they landed. They landed to uh, to recover personnel, and uh, uh, again, no concern. Even though fire uh, uh, fire coming from everywhere, uh, those helicopters looked like Swiss cheese when they got back. Uh, but those guys were just incredible. We could not have made it out without them. Was your commander at that point Boykin? Uh, General Boykin was our commander. General Garrison was the JSAC commander, uh, and. Uh, Uh, he was, uh, again, great general, uh, great man, uh, uh, moral and ethics beyond belief. Uh, I mean, his, uh, his convictions are just, uh, he, what he presents is, is what you get. I mean, that's, that's him. And he will not violate his, his morals, his principles, or his ethics. And that's, that's what I like about him. Uh, when, uh, on, on a further, again, uh, I've always trusted him. Even when I did missions at Singleton and I had to report back to him, uh, I never lied. I was told the truth to what we were doing, and I knew he'd back me up 100% and he always did. There is a character, and we're going to we'll move on from the uh, Somali incident, but I, I want to finish with this. There's a character in the film, Hoot, in the film. And I, I've always said now, I think we've, we've had this discussion in your office, but Hoot, to me, always personified you. It's a, there's a lot of you in that character, and I think there is some of that. Isn't that true? Yes, there is. Uh, Hoot was uh, based on three characters. Uh, it was based on Norm Hooten, therefore the name Hoot. Uh, he was a Texan, uh, blonde hair, great <laughs> uh, operator, Santa Grab. He's a he's a he's a pharmacist now. He's a, he always wanted to pursue that, and he did it. Uh, John Mesa Hunas, one of the smartest men I've ever met. Uh, multiple degrees. Uh, actually, had an opportunity to become an officer and turn it down so he could be a, uh, an NCO, 
operators. They can still be an operator as an NCO because officers, the, the unit has great officers, great officers, but officers have to pursue their career and they have to leave after so much time. So you get a great officer and you're like, man, I hope he never leaves, but there comes a point where he has to go to school, where he has to do an ops job. Uh, so they, they move on. And hopefully you always hope that eventually they'll come back, whether it be to the unit or JSAC, but stay within the community. Uh, but NCOs get to stay as long as they want. Uh, so uh, he knew that if he had been coming officer, his timeline would have been uh, short. And he said, eh, I will not take my commission. I'll stay as an NCO and I'll stay in the unit forever. Uh, he's, uh, since then he has gotten out. Uh, he retired to take care of his family, or his dad, who was sick. And he got a degree uh, in law and uh, in Washington State, he was in the sixth district attorney and uh, he's, uh, he's just an incredible man. So that was the three characters that Hood was based on. It was myself, John Mesa Hoodis and Norm Hood. Again, great, great guys. And everything you see on there, I'll say, uh, they, they, they perform everything that you see that was done under. There's, was that character, there was no lie. I mean, they did everything you see. So the, the classic, probably one of the most famous moments in the film is the end when Hoots re, re-kidding and he, he gives the speech about, we don't do this for politics. We do this for the man on the right and the left and back home, they don't get it. There's a lot of truth in that. Talk a little bit about that. So actually we got back and everybody re-kidded, everybody. I mean, we were bloody, we were hurt. I, I would say hundred percent of the guys in the unit were all has a wound of some type. Uh, naturally nobody wanted to say they were wounded because then they would send them away to, you know, the nurses would, triage them and then send them to Germany. So everybody just went to their own medic and said, hey, take care of it. Uh, I'd say that, that that phrase was probably told by, it was said by everybody, everybody. Uh, we went back, uh, obviously we, we uh, consolidated, uh, reorganized, uh, uh, reloaded for all our ammunition. And we were ready to get back on the birds or the vehicles and uh, actually, General Garrison told us to stop. And uh, we were like, whoa, you know, what's going on here? And uh, we, were, we were outraged. And we were mad. We all wanted to go out. We wanted to look for Gary. We wanted to look for Randy. Uh, we wanted to pretty much take revenge. Uh, and we didn't understand it. We didn't understand it. Uh, years later, I spoke to General Garrison and asked him why, uh, why the decision? Uh, and he said, Joe, if I had let you guys go out, you would have killed everybody. It would have been worse than the Mala incident in Vietnam. And that's not what we're about. And I, I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized now, not then, that that was the right decision. Uh, had we gone back out, we would have done, we would have committed atrocities as much as well-trained as we were. I, I, I believe that person. I'm just, that's just my opinion, my belief. I know I would have, and uh, uh, the unit would have uh, come back in shame, probably would have been disbanded. So it was the right decision. And uh, when he went back, General Garrison, again, he didn't want uh, nobody. Obviously, Senate always gets everybody questions about what happened, why the failure. For us, it wasn't a failure. I mean, we accomplished our mission. Uh, and when you look at 100-plus people against thousands, uh, I think uh, we, we fared pretty well. Uh, 
but but it, it would have been to go back out would have been the wrong thing to do. And again, that's just I agree with him. Uh, obviously, I didn't see it then. I see it now, and uh, and I thank him for it. Let's talk a little bit about Scotty Miller because you you kind of raised him a little bit as a in the unit. So, Scotty Scotty was always a good option, and uh, he knew the value of uh, the NCOs he had working for him. Uh, he understood that most of them have been there uh, 10 years or more. Uh, and I, I will say that that's probably, uh, some people stay longer than 10 years, but probably the minimum is, is 10, 10 years. Some guys will leave just uh, uh, to get promoted, and then they'll come back. That's because, again, the MOS process, uh, it's really considered an 18-type, uh, an 18-X-ray uh, position. Uh, so a lot of the guys that are 11 Bravos and the Rangers, they'll go back to do a leadership position because there's not a lot of leadership positions open. And then once they get their leadership time, they'll come back. So it helps them with promotion. Uh, he knew the value of having personnel that had been there for a long time. And he really listened. He really listened to his NCOs and he would ask us for our opinion. Uh, so, you know, when you say raise, we all, we all work together in raising our, our officers whenever we, we got them. But again, the, the officers that make it to the unit are, different from all others. Uh, they understand uh, that we work together and they understand that, you know, you have to rely on the experience that the guys have that have been there for a while. Sometimes we don't see, you know, what's going on behind, behind those doors or we don't understand the way some of the guys think that have been there for a long time. Uh, but there's guys that are legends. Um, Sergeant Major Dick Davis, one of them, Sergeant Major Jack Alvarez, uh, those guys have been there from, from the beginning. And uh, they said jump, you just ask how high. I mean, and, uh, and some people say, well, you should ask. And you should, but we knew that their expertise and their knowledge was just beyond what we were, what we were ever, ever even think of, you know. So uh, these guys, you know, forced recon for Vietnam. Uh, so uh, they were that not only were they, they still are legends. And most of the army will never know their names. That's the unfortunate side. But, but everything, I will say, everything that General Miller uh, or Scotty Miller learned, uh, he took with him and he used it till the day, till his last day in the army. I've never met privates uh, before who uh, would come up and say, uh, yeah, I went shooting with uh, General Miller took us to the range yesterday and he let me use his 45. And, uh, you know, that guy is like, a, he's a regular soldier. I mean, the kids just loved him. They loved him. I mean, he was just, he was a soldier. And uh, no, uh, you know, he never, I don't think he ever considered himself a general. I think it was just part of the job. You know, if it was up to him, he'd rather be, uh, rather be on the ground with, with, with the guys. Yeah, I agree with 100%. Let's move on to Colombia. Pablo Escobar, you, uh, that was one of your big missions, right? Yes. Uh, uh, Pablo Escobar had, uh, there's a, there's something we have to understand about the cartels and this is everywhere. It's, uh, I've been to Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, uh, or in Mexico working counter drugs. And, uh, what people don't understand is that, uh, most of these countries have no, They don't have any government programs to assist people. In Mexico, if you go to the emergency room, you have to pay for a bandit. 
I mean, so the cartels actually help the economy because the government doesn't provide for schools. The government doesn't provide, doesn't provide the needs of the people. Uh, I was working in Mexico one time and uh, I had this uh, 80 year old lady come up to me and say, uh, why are you here? I mean, what, excuse me, ma'am. She goes, well, why are you here? She said, we, we, don't you see that we are uh, the prime example in the world uh, for capitalism? I said, what? She said, you have, a, you have the demand, we have the supply. And I said, ma'am, you know what? You're absolutely right. And, and that's the thing is, you know, it's, it's the demand that the United States has for drugs that keeps these cartels alive. Is the demand that we have for drugs that that continue to to have drugs go across our border, and it doesn't matter how much uh, they say. Yeah, we caught this much going across the border. We caught this much. We put a dent. I've always asked when people made that comment. I always ask, okay, you say you put a dent because we captured so much, so many kilos of cocaine. How much cocaine was produced this year? Well, nobody knows. So how can you say you put it down? The other thing is uh, the price of cocaine has not changed very much in the last you know, 10 years. Well, if you really put it down, it would be skyrocketing. You know, the price would skyrocket. Um, the other thing is uh, people say, uh, well, if you legalize drugs, uh, then it'll go away because competition you know, there'll be people will be able to buy it, it'll be legal, and they won't have any problems. And the cartels won't uh, be able to sell as much, so they'll just fade away. That's wrong. I mean, look at California. Northern California has more uh, clandestine uh, growing fields than any other state in the U.S. They come across, they go into the national lands, they use the water, they use the, the, the ground for three months. A crop is three months time frame. And then after three months, they go to another one and they devastate that area. But guess what? They're not paying a lease for a building. They're not paying for water. They're not paying for electricity. Uh, so they can have cheaper prices. So if you live in the valley and you live in the projects, why am I going to go to a dispensary that's going to charge me federal, not federal tax, because not federal, but it's going to charge me state taxes and it's going to cost me double what I would pay in the street. So the street drugs will continue to be cheaper and they will never go away. Yeah, it's a huge issue. So the cartel issue, and you and I have talked a lot about this from an informational point of view. It's um, it's not simply cutting the head off the snake, which was pretty much what the Escobar mission was kind of framed around. Correct, Roger. So in in the past, you know, we always say you cut the head of the snake, and the and the and the body will die. I say no. Cartels are more like a, like a chicken. You cut the head off a chicken, and it keeps on running. Uh, and that's the thing is. Uh, they were, they are just, they are an organized group. But when it comes to, uh, to operating, they operate very independently to, to ensure that it protects that hierarchy, that person at the top. Uh, and in, in Mexico, uh, it was really uh, a few years ago when the violence was really high. It was just those younger guys killing up the guys and killing the guys on the top so they could be on top. And then, uh, but their life expectancy would be three, four, five years the most. And then they know they die and, and uh, next year I would take over. Uh, Pablo Escobar would still be alive today if it wasn't because he had 
higher ambitions than most cartel leaders. Cartels are there to make money. And that's it. It's about finances. It's about making money. Uh, it's not about... Uh, it is about power, but not power in the sense when we think about politicians. Pablo Escobar wanted to be a politician. He wanted to be... He wanted power, but he wanted power over people and country. So he uh, was from a town called Ligado, up in the Medellin area. He was the mayor of that town. He provided, if your husband down, he built it up. He provided, he loved soccer. He, brought, he built soccer fields. He, he bought uh, soccer uniforms for the children and soccer balls. He gave them away. <coughs> the, excuse me. The thing is, in Envigado, he was seen as a savior. So he said, well, uh, you know, I want to go beyond that. And he wanted to be in kind of the, the Columbia set. Uh, he ran for elections. He won. Uh, and uh, none of the other politicians played with him. They were like, ah, this guy's a cartel leader. We don't want nothing to do with him. So what does Pablo do? He starts killing them. And then uh, uh, in the courthouse, obviously back then, no computers. Everything was paperwork. So he teams up with the FARC, and they, uh, they storm uh, the courthouse. And they're, trying to, they're, burning all, they're burning all documents that pertain to, to Pablo Escobar. So they killed many judges and they burned the, the courthouse. And uh, he thought that way he would escape. But really what happened was he, he began a war against Colombia itself, uh, killing politicians, killing uh, uh, candidates for presidency. Uh, again, all because he wanted power. But his power was, again, not over the cartels, but over everything. If he had just stayed in Vigado, never left uh, again because the cartels are a need for the government and a need for the people, it would still be there. It would still be there. As it is today, the cartels still exist. They just learn to kind of operate underground, not raise any eyebrows, and it's, uh, they really own legitimate businesses and every, does, everything is done electronically. Is part of that mission, that was, was that a singleton mission for you? When we first, we, were, we had been going in and out of Colombia for years, uh, training uh, the Colombian army, training the police, trained the HRT. Now, people talk about police, obviously, we're there as advisors, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, uh, but really, it's up to the government. The government of that country will say who you can, you can train. Uh, and I'm saying that because of the positive kind of status. People say, well, how does that work in other countries? Well, we're, we're a guest of that country. And really, we, we operate side by side with them. And our training, we explain everything. And so they always give us a thumbs up and make sure that uh, we're doing what's best and what's proper for their military and, uh, and for the country. Uh, so we have been there for years. Uh, Paulo Escobar uh, did not want to be extradited. He was afraid of being extradited. So the government gave him a deal. You turn yourself in, we'll charge you with the least of all crimes, and you get to choose your prison. So you go, okay. So he turned himself in. Uh, now, there was, a, there was a kind of a youth camp in, uh, in Vigado on top of a, of a mountain. Uh, and he took and he kind of reinforced it with a fence and towers. And he said, that's the jail I want to go to. Well, he built it. It was his own really jail. Uh, there was, uh, was there a fence around it? Actually, there was two fences. There was a fence for the government guards that was on outside and these shacks that were horrible. And then there was another fence on the interior. with these nice uh, you know, brick uh, shacks with air conditioning and heaters. And that was his guards. Uh, there was no bars in any... And any, uh, the only bars that were that were there were uh, from uh, 
I think it was one of the rooms, uh, his room. Uh, there were some bars that we used to take photos behind. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, it was not a prison. As a matter of fact, the room he had was uh, could be a five-star hotel. Underneath his room, he had a, it was a disco club. And, uh, and in the background on the mountains, he had built a cabin so that he could have guests coming over. It was, uh, it was, it was quite an operation. So what happened was uh, uh, a Colombian politician uh, uh, learned about how he was living and what he was doing. So he went up there to see how secure it was. Said, there's no security here. There's nothing whatsoever. So when I go back, I'm going to recommend that uh, Pablo Escobar gets, trans, uh, gets uh, moved to a, a Colombia prison. Uh, well, what happened was uh, they, they killed the politician and his crew and uh, his detail, and uh, Pablo Escobar escaped. So uh, Delta got the word, and uh, uh, they put together a team led by uh, Gary Harold. Colonel Harold at the time uh, went on to become a general. And uh, we brought a team in. Uh, we tried to uh, follow the tracks of where he had escaped from, couldn't find him. But pretty much we just uh, uh, put some security on that prison and uh, uh, to see, uh, to learn, learn his operations, what he was doing, and see if we could figure out where he went. And then uh, kind of formulate a plan with the Columbia police and the Colombian army as to how, how this operation was going to go. Uh, after, the, after the initial operation uh, took over, then we, we, were, uh, we were pretty much uh, used as singletons in different areas. Uh, I, was in, uh, I was in the, up in Envigado in the jail for a while, training some of the guys, uh, some of the Colombian uh, uh, police and military. This was a joint operation. I just want to say that. In the beginning. Uh, the police was in charge, was the army in support. Uh, people always ask me, well, how, how did they manage that? Uh, the reason they managed that is uh, we knew that after the Medellin cartel, then we would go after other cartels. So then the next one was promised. So the next one was the Cali cartel after that, and that was promised. It would be the opposite. It would be the military in, uh, in the lead was the police in support. And uh, the other thing is that the, we had trained an HRT, us uh, rescue team. Uh, and we had all the, we had uh, uh, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, and Marines all combined, and police in that team. And what we realized is that unless we have them all working together, they will never support each other. And that was the thing, the police really didn't work with the, with the military. The Army didn't work with the Air Force. Air Force didn't work with Marines or Navy, uh, but by, by combining the military and the police uh, and this task force, then uh, we were all supportive of each, of each other. And it was the only way to really make sure that if we needed aircraft, we had them, if we needed boats, we had them, if we needed uh, the police, we had them. And uh, so it worked out very well. And that mission ultimately was successful, obviously. Your team was able to track him down. Yes. Uh, yeah, we were, uh, I mean, it's no secret what we did. Obviously, there's a book by Mark Bowden, Killing Pablo. Uh, out there, uh, uh, we we pretty much were tracking his uh, his phone calls and whenever we could, uh, trying to triangulate him and uh, and figure out where he was. Uh, he was very smart. He talked for about 
three to five minutes and he throw that phone away. And the next time it would come up, it was some bum in the streets had it. Uh, but Pablo Escobar really uh, loved his family. And the further he was from them, the longer he was uh, away from them, uh, the more he missed them. So he ended up uh, on the phones uh, longer and longer and longer. He was really worried about their safety. He was worried about the safety of his, of his wife, but really of his son. Uh, so he just kept on talking to the point where uh, we were able to, to track him down. I personally believe he was just, he was just tired of running, and, uh, but he would never turn himself in. So, uh, but again, that's just my beliefs. You and I've also talked about the consequence of the mission and how that ultimately led to greater conflict with the cartels and violence in Colombia. Because as much as he was a head of the snake, he was also a stabilizer between the other cartels as they, didn't, they had one kingpin, so to speak. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, so obviously he, uh, at that time, uh, he was the most powerful cartel and the most vicious. Uh, so imagine if, if I say, Scott, I'm going to take out your, I'm going to take out your competition. <laughs> uh, so what would be your reaction? I'm going to give you as much information as I can. Uh, so we really had a lot of uh, uh, information from other cartels. And uh, obviously, uh, they had no problem taking each other out. So other cartels had a lot, a lot of play in this, uh, not realizing that they were next. So uh, obviously, it's not something we were going to make public. But, uh, you know, you want to help us? Sure, go ahead. But guess what, buddy? You're next. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then we, uh, we also had a, a group called uh, Los Pepes. Personas en contra de Pablo Escobar, which is people against Pablo Escobar, who ended up being a vigilante group that really uh, put a lot of fear uh, into the hearts and minds of some of the other cartel members. So uh, a, lot of them, a lot of them feared Los Pepes more than they feared us. That book you referred to, and I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but that created a bit of a problem for you, did it not? Uh, yeah, at that time, uh, we really didn't go in with uh, aliases. Uh, we, were under, we were under true name, so uh, our names got out there. Uh, somebody asked once, uh, somebody asked uh, uh, Mark Bodden, how come he printed people's names out there? Not, did he not realize he put people's lives and their families in jeopardy? Uh, but his answer was he thought they were aliases. He didn't think we'd go in there under true name. And uh, so that did cause a lot of problems and it actually caused a lot of uh, operators that were in Colombia, their families to uh, really be on guard for several years. We were, we were, some of us were on, on the cartel hit list, uh, or at least we were told. Uh, so, uh, so I had to make sure my family knew that, uh, especially my brother, I have a twin brother, I made sure that he knew that they'd probably come after him. They'd probably come at him first since he was a little bit more visible than That's the end of part one, the interview with Joe Vega. Um, He's he's an amazing man and a great friend. He's a real American hero. And I I think to meet him, you would appreciate just how humble he is with all that he's done and all the missions he's been on and all the things that he continues to do. He's got a heart for this nation that never stops. And uh, it's really a great example of what true soldiering 
is about. Patriots, let's pray. Father, we're blessed these times that we have and the engagements that we continue to have with people that have really committed their lives and committed all they have into the greater cause for this nation and for the people of this nation and for others. Joe's a great example of this, and we pray for him in this process of what he's done for this country and what he continues to do in raising up great soldiers and great leaders. He's, he's an example for many to remember and to follow as he is unwavering in his commitment to truth and walking a life of truth and honesty. And he is also a man deep in the love of Jesus. So we just pray that you continue to guide him in all he does and that his example will be that will share shed on other people's hearts to raise them up and to be in a, in a legacy as leadership is to lead others with the example and the power that we have through your wisdom through the power of kingdom and the love in Christ. And we say these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So Patriots, again, an, a really enjoyable interview for me on this day in particular where we broke 2,000 episodes. That was not planned. It just ended up that way. But um, it's been a long time since, a long time coming to get Joe on the show. And a real legacy as he mentioned, if you do see Black Hawk Down or are compelled to watch Black Hawk Down, you'll, I think you'll have perhaps a little deeper appreciation as you watch that and realize that this man was there, along with some other people that I know and have worked with. And the character Hoot at the end again is tailored in part around Joe and two others. If you read about the uh, the killing of Pablo Escobar, that framing right there. That's a true story that was built around Joe's mission that he led and was point on. And it just, I think it gives you a deeper perspective on the sort of commitments of people that are made, have made in this nation, not for politics at all. And the, the sort of balance that's always carried out in a special operations community. It's not about war, but it is about justice. So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We're at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots will be back at 9 p.m. Pacific for part two of the interview with Joe Vega. Until then or until the next time, God bless. And out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. 
Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. Push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. 